Only on a Sunday, a podcast about more than church. Welcome to the Only on a Sunday podcast. This season, we are focusing on deconstructing church, where the church has been and where it is going. We have the privilege of Nikki and Kelly Chewbacca joining us. They are forerunners in developing local fellowships that move away from traditional models of ministry and into new and creative expressions of the kingdom. Nikki is currently the Assistant Commissioner of the Alaska Department of Education and Early Development, as well as a board member of the Anchorage Coalition to End Homelessness and the Council on Domestic Domestic Violence and Sexual Assault. He is the co-founder and co-owner of Bisa World, a Ghanaian company that was established to mass produce and export quality agricultural products. You guys have such amazing CVs. I'm always amazed that we're friends. But (laughs) Kelly, I get to do Kelly's intro. She's the former or was the former chief data officer of the United States Postal Service of the Inspector General and General Counsel for the U.S. Department of Justice. She is currently the commissioner of the Department of Administration for Alaska and a mom of five. Nikki and Kelly are both ordained ministers and church planters. They currently lead the Lighthouse Fellowship, a network of fellowships attempting to bring about a disciple-making movement in Alaska. And they live in Anchorage with their five kids and their amazing sprinter van. (laughs) We're so happy to have you guys. Yeah, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having us. Yeah. So um, first thing that we try to do this whole season is talk, ask uh, our guests to share with us a funny ministry story. You know, church life is, um, yeah, it's, you know, it's full of (laughs) sinners and we we make some mistakes and we do some goofy things sometimes. So we just love it. If you guys, if you could share with us like a funny ministry story, something you just like, you just can't make up this kind of stuff. So you guys got something like that? Oh, I think we have quite a few like that. (laughs) (laughs) One of them that comes to mind is I came up with a new translation for the Bible, I guess a couple, a couple times. So I manuscript, I manuscript a lot of my sermons, don't necessarily read them verbatim, but I like to know where I'm going and what I'm going to say. And there was one time where I decided instead of using the acronym for a common translation that we use, the NIV, uh, that I was going to say the translation fully instead of using the acronym. And so I said, please turn with me to this passage of scripture. I'm going to be reading from the New International Virgin. And I stopped myself. Everybody was just rolling. Probably, you know, part of the problem with what happened is I apparently, I, I don't learn my lessons very easily. So it wasn't more than a couple of months later where I was faced with the same circumstance. (laughs) Decided to not use the acronym yet again. And I asked everybody to once again turn turn to the new international virgin. (laughs) And so it took a couple of times, right? And now I'm... Now I only say NIV. <laughs> yeah. At, at what point do you even switch from the NIV, right? right. right. <laughs> you, you can't screw up ESV. Right? Yeah. Going forward, it's all King James. Yeah. 
Oh my gosh! Yeah, remind me to never have you preach, Nikki. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> hey, it'll be salty and interesting, you know. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's hilarious. That is. That so is awesome. Funny. That's a um, good one. Well, thanks again, guys, for joining us this season. We're talking a little bit about deconstructing church, and uh, one of the phrases that has come up over and over and over is, "There's got to be more." You know, there's got to be more to this. And as we look out on the horizon of the American church, even the, to a certain degree, the international church, like there's just got to be more to what we're seeing. Like, is there more to just endless meetings and programs? You know, is there more to like, we just fight about politics and, you know, my missional outreach is posting a Facebook meme. Like that's like, like that's the extent of what we have. And so, you know, when we thought about like, who can we interview to talk about, there's got to be more to church. I mean, almost immediately, we got to talk to Nikki and Kelly. And the, one of the main reasons we wanted to is like, because you guys are, are in positions of influence, right? And you're using those p- positions of influence for the kingdom. And I know that there's a lot of people that listen to our podcast that are, are also in positions of influence, whether they're small business owners, they work for governments, the, you know, a lot of Hollywood type people live out here. And so when we're looking at church and we're looking at new ways of doing church, what does it look like when you're kind of in a high capacity person or couple to be moving forward? So we just wanted to start by asking you guys if you could share with us a little bit, just kind of about your church upbringing. Like, what did that look like? You know, what churches were you involved? What was your church experience? Sure. And, and I, let me say, it's, it's thank you guys for inviting us to be a part of this. And I, and I love the theme, deconstructing church. And as you brought it up, it reminded me of when Jesus was at the temple with his disciples and, and he was speaking to everybody there and he said, you see, you see this temple in three days, you know, and I'm going to tear it down in three days. It's going to be rebuilt. Right. And everybody's like, how can you do that? It took, you know, 40 years to build this thing. And, and the point was not about destroying what was, it was about rebuilding it and building into something even greater than what they could possibly have imagined. So when I think of the term deconstructing church, it's not so much as we just want to tear apart everything that is church because it all stinks. It's about how can we think like Jesus in terms of taking it apart piece by piece and rebuilding it into something that is aligns more closely with the incarnational expression of what he intends the body of Christ to be in this season, in this age. Mm-hmm. And so um, I know a lot of people kind of associate a negative connotation with that. And, and I don't, I think it's a, it's a positive thing. It's a good thing. And so I'm really appreciative that, that you guys are are uh, pursuing this thing. So anyway, with that, I uh, I you know I grew up uh, around the world on four different continents. My dad's from the Democratic Republic of Congo. My mom's from the U.S. And so grew up in a few different places in Africa: uh, Democratic Republic of Congo, Liberia, Kenya. We went through two coup d'etats and finally decided to leave Africa and went to Brazil and Spain. And then my parents went on to Germany and Poland. So. You know, we had a lot of ex- opportunities to experience worshiping the Lord in mm. in the context of sort of like a almost like a sort of a prophetic picture of that eschatological picture that, that that John the John the Beloved paints for us in the Book of Revelation, where every nation, tribe, and tongue is going to come together to worship before the throne. Like I I grew up getting to do that with, mm-hmm. with different tribes and nations, and and so that was a really cool important piece for me growing up in terms of shaping my perspective on what the church is or 
more precisely who the church is. Mm-hmm. And we also, uh, my parents were very ecumenical in their in their their approach. I mean, they both came out of the Catholic Church, and you know, we ended up attending Baptist churches. We ended up attending some sort of more high liturgical churches, like high churches, like uh, you know, Lutheran sort of Methodist type things. We got connected with Foursquare and the Pentecostal movement more in in Brazil. But even in Kenya, we were part of a small kind of church that actually met at a school that was a British Baptist slash Pentecostal church. I mean, go figure, right? Like, yeah, those, those three don't go together like in yeah. any. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I, grew, I grew up comfortable being around different expressions of of the church and different different doctrinal obviously um, beliefs and and so I felt comfortable in pretty much any kind of religious tradition within the orthodox doctrine of Christianity but I loved I loved the Foursquare Church it was probably the most influential part of my life uh, we attended a house church in Brazil and and it was just really it, it provided me the opportunities even as a young young teenager uh, when I had a teenager at that time, I was probably between the ages of nine and 12, where that pastor really just took me under his wing. And during services, if I had a scripture I wanted to read, he would call me up to read it and really made me feel like I was a part of the body mm. and that I had something to share and something to offer. Mm. Um, and then we went off to Spain and did a, I, I attended a, a Spanish a Foursquare church and it was all in Spanish. You know, and and so all that really shaped and I think influenced how I would later in life approach church. And uh, we ended up planning a Foursquare church when we were at Harvard in law school, and that also shaped kind of how we thought about community and what it means to be a community as as a body. So that's my upbringing with with church. My parents were very strong believers and really really raised me to to pursue my faith. And they didn't always answer my questions. They oftentimes didn't have answers to my brilliant questions for them. And, and so <laughs> they say, well, here's the Bible, go do your research. And that really helped me to de- develop that independent relationship with the Lord. And they would guide me, you know, and say, okay, you could start here and try this. And I come to them when I, but I learned and they would have a conversation about it. And they, you know, and so that really helped in that sort of discipleship process for me to learn how to grow in my walk with God and, and, and seek him. So I grew up in Anchorage, Alaska, and I attended a Methodist church. And in my church, I learned a lot about God and Jesus, and then we didn't really talk about the Holy Spirit. So what I realized later in life, looking back, is I really developed what I would call like a purgatory theology, though it was never said that way. It was a lot about God and Jesus and then live really well until you die. And then when you die, you'll go to heaven. Mm. So it was just kind of a wait well theology, Mm -hmm. even if that was unintentional in how it was communicated. And I don't in all mean to say that that's what all Methodist churches teach. That's just what our Methodist church conveyed to me in my childhood. So when I left for college, that's what I grew up knowing. Then I went to college in Texas, and the part of Texas I was in, everything is Southern Baptist. Like there's the Catholic Southern Baptist Church, the Baptist Southern Baptist Church, <laughs> the Southern Baptist Church, 
You get the idea? Yeah. So I decided I would that, really like to go to the Catholic Southern yeah. Baptist. I'm yeah, just no, saying. Yeah, yeah. Southern Baptist Church. But it didn't matter where you went. I just, I tried all the churches because I had decided I didn't need to be committed to being Methodist. And it, there's just a Southern Baptist undercurrent that infiltrated all theology. So I became Southern Baptist. I just didn't realize it. And there's a lot of great things about being Southern Baptist. And then there's the other things. And so then I met Nikki in law school and Nikki actually shared with me all these experiences he'd had overseas that I had never heard about before. Like I read about these stories in the Bible and then I heard these stories about like missionaries having these stories, but like missionaries from a long time ago, and they kind of sound make-believe. But then I was talking to a person who had encounters with the Holy Spirit and had experienced miracles himself or had witnessed miracles in others. And it really rocked my understanding of God because what I saw is the God I knew and the way I understood things about the spiritual world was not, it did not equal what had happened in Nikki's reality. So I had to change my understanding of God because it didn't fit Nikki's experience and those two things weren't equal. So I started to really dig into a different understanding of God. And that's when my spiritual life really pivoted. That was a pivotal moment. A different pivotal moment was my senior year of high school actually doing a thesis on the grapes of wrath, which was not when you would expect to have a spiritual awakening. But in studying the grapes of wrath, which was actually based on the character of Jesus Christ, I had a spiritual transformation around the love of God and started to understand that differently. And that affected me through through college, fortunately. Um, so carrying those two things together through law school, I started to unintentionally become Pentecostal. And I used to deride Pentecostalism. There's a lot of people who think you cannot be an intellect, an intellectual person and a Pentecostal. I'm here as a example of the anomaly. Um, <laughs> like, I think that you, at this point in my in my development, you cannot be a full Bible-believing Christian and an intellectual Christian who's actually studied the Bible and not believe in the fullness of a Pentecostal God. That's where I've come in it. But I've had to go through a lot of transformation. As an example, I used to be an apologist against women in ministry, and now I'm the senior pastor of our church. So, man, that was a that was a rocky and channel. That's a one eighty. <laughs> See, ever since you met Nikki, like you were this nice Southern Baptist girl, you know, just kind of doing your thing. I was yeah. <laughs> I wasn't loud or mouthy or brassy. Yeah. Nikki, Nikki ruined yeah. you. <laughs> I, just, I just fit right in the place I was supposed to fit in. And yeah. <laughs> I drank my Diet Coke and I sugared my iced tea and now here I am. <laughs> so that's the short version. Okay. So um, you guys, you guys meet at Harvard and you are part of this church plant with a good friend of ours, actually, Russ Schlecht is, is if I remember properly. And then you're doing that. And then that kind of led to, I believe not too long afterwards, you, you went out and planted your own church. Is that, am I getting that time frame accurate? Yes, it was, it was, depends on your, your, your definition of not too long. It was several years after we graduated from law school. 
but we had been approached by a, a wonderful man of God. You guys know very well, Daniel Brown. Mm-hmm. And uh, he approached us just uh, several months after we graduated. But it, it took took uh, several years for me to get to that point. Kelly was already there. <laughs> uh, but it took me several several years of just really seeking God and, and waiting for that moment where I really felt him release and say, OK, now do it. For me, it wasn't about whether we would do it. It was about when. And when I felt that release and him say, OK, now we, we went for it. So OK. And, and when you're. Well, what are you doing in the interim time? So in the interim, I was, we were, we were trying to find a church. So we were looking, going to different churches and we weren't picky. We were just, but it was, there just wasn't anything that was a good fit. And I remember Dr. Daniel saying, you guys aren't going to find a church that fits because God wants you to create a place for others that you're looking for yourself. Hmm. And, um, so that's what we were doing. In the meantime, I was I was in private practice at a law firm for the first couple of years. And then I went on to the civil rights division at the Department of Justice and was a trial attorney there. And uh, Kelly was working as well at the Department of Justice. Um, and so that's that's when we when we planted. And and so did you plant a, like I don't mean this in a disparaging way, but did you plant like the traditional local church or what was was there some distinctives to it? You know, what did, what did it kind of look like? A great question. The distinctive was we didn't want to even call it a church because that just sounded too scary. So we called it a fellowship. And I, you know, I just said to the Lord, look, your, your word says that you're the one who builds your church. And it's not that I think it's wrong, but I just, I'm not that person that wants to go out and quote, market a brand and mm. a church. Like you're the brand, Jesus, and your Holy Spirit is your is your marketer. And I'm just the person here who ostensibly is going to shepherd whoever you bring. So we will unlock the doors to our home and whoever you bring to our home, we will, we will pass through. Hmm. And that was sort of our deal with the Lord. And he just started bringing people. We had a couple people start with us. Uh, Daniel Brown's daughter, Laurel had started at John Hopkins medical school up in Baltimore, which was a little over an hour away. And she committed during medical school to drive down every Sunday to support us. Wow. And we had another pastoral couple that came out from Hawaii, uh, Jane Kimberlew, who uh, had experience with church planting and they were going to plant in our area as well. And I said, hey, we'll come alongside you for the first year. And so that was our our little church plant. And, and then people just started coming. They just started showing up. We didn't have a website. It was just kind of, hey, is there a church here? We heard there's a church here. Yeah, come on in. <laughs> That's great. Can we get you some coffee? Yeah. Yep. <laughs> That's fabulous. Um so yeah, so sure. then tell us about the pro- progression of that of that church. Like, so what happened? Well, we you know we we started off being bivocational, and that was hard. Uh, I mean, one one of the biggest struggles we initially had was who's going to be the lead pastor. And um, God made very clear that I am actually His anointed, and so uh, <laughs> that's a joke for our listeners. <laughs> Sorry, our listeners don't have the benefit of the screen, but watching Kelly's face is just making this whole experience. Yeah, and then watching Nikki kind of move a little to the side—that was that's 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 priceless. Yeah, you want to get hit by the shrapnel there. So no, we we you know we we worked through that and and. we, we realized that we really are co-leaders and, you know, for purposes of administration, we'd had to have a senior pastor. And so that was me. We, we, you know, we started off with a really small group 
and it grew exponentially within the first six to eight months. And we were very quickly, we were up to about 20, 30, 20, 25 people. But I remember about six months in, a couple of things happened. One, uh, there was one service, you know, I had to work really hard to, you know, as a litigator. And then like Saturdays was my day to do sermon prep. And so Saturdays was when I did my sermon prep. And I would spend most of the day doing that. And there was this one Sunday where nobody showed up. There was like three or four people. And I was so upset. And my and I, I have my pastor face on, right? Because I'm now yeah. upset. You know? So I'm smiling and greeting the three or four people who showed up. I rem- and I'm just grumbling in my spirit. And I remember the Lord saying, remember, they're not here for you. You're here for them. Mm-hmm. And that really changed my perspective on, on pastoring going forward. That it really, you know, the flesh would get sometimes obviously you know, upset that somebody was, you know, not enough people here. Or I just didn't feel like people cared. But Really, I was able to keep my focus on that, that the realization that this was not never about me and was never going to be about me. It was about God's sheep. And whether he called me to pastor two or 20 or 200, it didn't matter. Mm. My calling and my mission was to pastor whoever he brought to me and to steward that gift because it was a gift. Well, and so about six months or so in, the Lord spoke to Kelly and said, told her to tell me that it was time for me to start looking at going full time. And, you know, at that point, we had a mega church of about 10 to 15 people. Um, and time, you know, to, it's time to divide up. Huge. Yeah. Right? Time like, for did you campus. Start, yeah. Did you start having multi-campus discussions <laughs> in your staff meetings? Yeah. <laughs> so that was, you know, that and we had we had just had another our second child and we had a mortgage on a, a house that assumed the salary of two lawyers. And, and God had just told us to adopt. Mm. And yeah. And so it was, it was, we were really feeling it. And I struggled with that and really wrestled with the Lord until I said, just, just pray about it, Nikki. Cause at first I just said, woman, you need to hear how to hear the voice of God. You need to learn how to hear the voice of God. Cause what you're hearing, that doesn't sound like God to me. Cause you know, of course God is rational. God doesn't ask. you God sounds a lot things. like Nikki Chewbacca. Yeah. Right. He has the mind of Nikki. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Kelly, you know, just being the gracious, wonderful Southern Baptist dish that she is. Waiting on the Lord. And just say, hey, you promised me you'll pray about it. I said, yeah, I'll do that. Okay. And then I dutifully forgot. And then one day I was running back from work and I was running to the, the metro. I was, you know, I was running late and and I remembered, oh, I promised Kelly I would pray about this. Okay, I'm going to do this quick popcorn prayer. I said, Lord, if you want me to do this, I'll do it. Just let me get our finances in order, save up some money. And immediately the scripture came to mind, take no gold or silver for your, gold or silver for your journey. Mm-hmm. And it just literally stopped me dead in my tracks. And I realized, wow, this is serious. Mm-hmm. God is speaking to my wife. Go figure, right? Because <laughs> I'm the Pentecostal, remember? I'm the one who called her, <laughs> right? How to hear from the Holy Spirit. Yeah, the uh, student has become the master. <laughs> oh, yeah. So anyway, I uh, long story short, we uh, the Lord just kind of just kept hitting me with scripture after scripture after scripture. And then the one that really kind of clinched it all for me was as I was one day just giving him all the excuses that I had for why I couldn't do this. We were visiting my parents for the weekend and I was walking down in their neighborhood outside in this beautiful summer day. And I was just sitting on this grassy knoll. and the, the God brought to mind that he told me to read the story of Gideon. So I read it and Gideon's giving God all the excuses why he couldn't do it, what God was asking him to do. And then God says to him, go in the strength that you have. Am I not sending you? And it was just like that scripture just, 
it was like a weight that just went woof into my soul. And I just realized, okay, I'm not going to have all the answers. I'm not going to have everything I need. I just need to go with what I got. Mm-hmm. And I finally surrendered to the Lord in that moment. And as I realized the cost, I just started bawling. And I remember standing up and starting to walk home and I'm bawling and it's the middle of, it's like a noonday, you know, it's glorious out. I'm just crying as I'm walking down the road. I'm like, God, please don't let anybody stop their car and ask me what's wrong. Cause it's going to be such a poor testimony for me to say, you know, Jesus wants me to be a pastor. We just went for it after that. And I remember talking with Daniel Brown, who was our supervisor at the time. And he said, he went through our finances, our church finances, and he said, and he signed me a small salary. And I was like, this is not going to be enough to cover our, our expenses. And he brought, we had a lot of savings because we weren't taking a salary at the time. And he said, I'm going to spread this out for a year. And at the end of this year, you're going to be at zero technically in your balance. But I'm telling you right now, you're going to have just as much money, if not more, at the end of that first year. And I looked at him and was like, oh, sure, right, whatever, right? And sure enough, a year later, we had more money in our church savings account than we had before. Uh, I was taking a pastoral salary and we weren't hurting for money at all. We were doing really, really well. The church had grown and we were ready to move into a building. And so it was, it was an amazing time just to see the supernatural power of, of God work in the midst of our faith, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, but one of the things that God made very clear uh, about a year into it was he gave me a vision uh, not like a scene with my eyes vision, but a picture in my mind where he showed me a, a bonfire. He said, you know, most churches look like this. They're a bonfire and bonfires are beautiful. They spread a nice, warm glow around them. But that's not what I'm calling you to build. What I want you to build is a, a lighthouse network. And the picture then became one of torches strategically placed all around that same area. And you see, and he said, you see how if you can place torches strategically in that same space, in that same environment, they cast a far greater glow than just a single bonfire. And he said, I'm calling you to make, to strategically place those torches, not to build a bonfire. And so that became the birth of what, we, what we're calling now our Lighthouse Network. And we tried for many years to federate our model and create these lighthouses. But for many reasons, it just didn't work. A lot of it had to do with this, the transition in DC, people come in for two to four years and and then they leave. And so right when we got into people to sort of embrace the vision, they were gone. <laughs> yeah. Right. It, yeah. Wasn't, it wasn't until my last year of pastoring where we'd had a, a solid core of leaders who'd been with us for three or four years and weren't going anywhere anytime soon that we actually had that, that critical mass. And it was right at that point when we were about to pull the trigger to really push this forward that God said, okay, Nikki, time to step down. And it's time for your wife to take over. And he'd actually warned me about that a couple of years before he'd said, well, she would tell you he was preaching. He said, you're not the pastor of the church anymore. She is. And, and, uh, not two weeks later, another guy in the church came up to me, didn't know what God had said to me. And he said, uh, pastor, I don't mean to be rude, but God just wanted me to tell you that you're not the pastor of the church anymore, whatever that's worth. <laughs> oh, thank <laughs> you. We got to We just got to watch and see when God says that it's time for me to move on. And so he did. And, and I, I, I remember transitioning the, the church to Kelly and saying that, you know, I feel kind of like Moses, you know, passing, you know, passing the baton on to Joshua. And, and of course, as I did that, we actually passed a literal baton. And, and then she, Kelly gets up and says to the church, well, let's remember what God said after Moses did that. He said, Moses, my servant is dead. So 
<laughs> I was like, there has to be an old man joke or a death joke in there. Come on. Your compassion is strong with this one. Yeah. <laughs> so what's what's happening with you over this time, Kelly? Like what's what what's going on with you and your ministry understanding? So through that whole journey, that was about oh goodness, eleven years of ministry. So I was co-pastoring alongside with Nikki and did a lot of discipling of different people in the church and raising people up in leadership, working individually, mostly with several of the women leaders in our church. Some have since become senior pastors or missionaries that we've launched. They gave up careers or have worked bivocationally since and become full-time missionaries. Um, Led preaching cohorts, for example, just discipling efforts of different kind of ran several discipling groups, taking people on spiritual maturity journeys, if you will. And then also got different ministries started and up and running in the church and training people in those. So was leading the children's ministry or other programs. Um, We use the different ministries in the church to get people done. And so I would as Nikki was kind of leading from the front of the church, I would be leading the back end operations, administrative or set up, clean up, um, getting the lighthouses going, et cetera. So then when it was time to transition, that was in 2017, I said, okay, so again, using the Moses and Joshua story and symbol, I realized going back to the story, Joshua just carried out exactly what Moses said to do. So I went back to 2008 when Nikki wrote down that vision of the bonfire and then the candles in the communities. And I read through it really carefully and just said, Lord, what do you want us to do? Like, what's the original vision? And it was really clear, just as Nikki said, the idea is we don't expect people to come to church. We're supposed to take church to them. And so we just basically kept doing the same thing we were doing, but we were supposed to do it on steroids. And one thing I noticed is we were sort of doing church one foot in and one foot out or doing our vision. I guess I need to be clear about that. One of the things that we try to do now is not use the word church. So to Nikki's Mm -hmm. point, it's very intentional and purposeful that we don't be critical of or denigrate the way that our friends and our colleagues do church because they're very easily doing exactly what God told them to do. All of us are reaching the people that we're supposed to reach. But I've noticed that when we use the word church, people automatically go to an assumption or a connotation that they have in their mind about what it looks like. But when I use the word church, I'm saying something that most people have never even thought of before. I'm talking about the body of Christ, the people of God doing the work of God, empowered by the word of God, inspired by the spirit of God. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's not. Go ahead. Sorry. I was just going to jump in and say, um, we interviewed Andy Ashworth in Glasgow, Scotland, who said almost verbatim what you're saying now is people have such a connotation around the word church that we... It's almost like we need new vocabulary. Right. Because when, yeah, you're right. What I'm saying is if all buildings in the world disappeared, Mm -hmm. the church would still be here, which is what most Americans think of church, right? Exactly. Yeah. Right. So 
when I went back and read it, what I realized is we've done a really good job of training up our people, mobilizing our people, et cetera. But where we were really not doing a good job, one of the other things that God had told Nikki with this vision is prepare my people for persecution. The persecution is coming. Mm-hmm. We've had that word now for about 13 years hmm. before COVID. I want to be clear. Um, <laughs> this is coming. Mm-hmm. And you know, and this is our assignment. This is why we've been preparing leaders. But what we were doing when we were doing Sunday service every week on top of these sort of intense training lighthouses or what we would call, a lot of people call small groups or small church type groups, is we were really running our people in the ground. It's intense. We were doing, yeah. we were doing church twice a week, if you will. Mm-hmm. And so... We, I just went right back to the Bible. I just got to be really honest. And I, I had to say, what do I see in the Bible? What were the people of God, empowered by the word of God, inspired by the spirit of God? Like when the spirit came on, what were they doing? And a lot of people say, oh, I've got a New Testament church. I just truthfully, you can really manipulate that a lot of ways. I had to say, what did I see in the New Testament Plus, what was God telling us to do? Plus, what fit with our D.C. church at the time? Mm -hmm. And then that's what what we saw happening as we started to change our church in 2017 and 18. And then this is sort of concisely what happened. We canceled Sunday service except for once a month Mm -hmm. because what I saw in Acts is they met regularly every day, actually, but we didn't have the ability to do that every day because we're all by like an hour drive after work Mm. they met regularly in their homes Um, but then they would come together periodically in this places like Solomon's Colonnade which is like our Starbucks it was like the social gathering place where the unclean people were and they could talk freely about Mm. Jesus and that's Mm. where they read Paul's letters and that's where they encountered people who didn't know Jesus and that's where they shared stories about what was happening in their smaller get-togethers, their small groups. So Mm -hmm. that's where I saw, oh, that's where they're doing worship. So they sometimes would go to the temple. That's where they would do worship, read letters, so corporate teaching, and share stories. Testimony, worship, and sermon. Got it. Mm -hmm. We have to do that periodically. So we do a a once-a-month celebration service that feels like typical church, and I don't mean typical in a negative way. We need that. We need corporate gathering and corporate fellowship. It can't be replaced by a group of eight to 10 or 15 people. Yeah. We find that out the hard way. Mm. And I'm glad we have celebration service now. Otherwise, we meet weekly and some groups meet more than once a week in these smaller groups where we don't have a know-it-all expert who sits down and pontificates about their Bible knowledge, which is what we were doing before. There was all this expectation that Kelly and Nikki impart so much knowledge about the Bible, but that's not what we see in the Bible. See in Matthew 28, what I saw is Jesus says, go therefore and teach them to obey all that I've commanded you. There's so much in there. Teach them to follow or put into practice or apply what I've taught you. That doesn't mean I have to be an expert in everything in the Bible and I have to then teach that, transmit that, convey that, sermonize on that to other people. It doesn't say that anywhere. It says, Kelly, what I have told you to do and you learn from me, teach others how to put that into practice as well. Mm-hmm. Simple. 
That's all I have to do. But if I go and pontificate about that and I don't tell them how to put it into practice and then help them put it into practice, I have failed. Not only as a pastor, this isn't for pastors, this is for all Christians. And then over in John chapter six, what it says is God will lead them to himself, which means my job is to help people facilitate God leading them to himself. And so then the other part, and I love this, oh, it blew my mind. Go over to where Jesus rose across the sea, over to the Decapolis, metropolitan area of 10 pagan cities. There he meets this guy who can break chains, break rocks, super powered because he's full of demons, right? Touches him. He has a Jesus experience. Guy gets clean for 30 minutes, begs him to go to seminary. I'm translating here. Um, This is not the NIV. This is the Kelly translation, short term. Um, He he basically is like, hey, let me go back with you and join the disciples. I want to follow you. And Jesus says, no. He says, no. This is mind-blowing. You do not get to go to seminary. Instead, I want you to go back to 10 pagan cities and tell them what happened. I was Mm -hmm. like, okay. And then we fast forward the story. Later, Jesus rose back across, and he's in the the Decapolis. And all these people, hundreds, thousands, not clear, crowds come to him, and they know who he is. Kelly, how do they know who he is? Well, because the former demoniac went and told him, hold up. A demoniac mm-hmm. can have an encounter with the living God and suddenly evangelize the Decapolis, then why can't we go out among the lost, give them an encounter with Jesus and set them up to run small groups? Are they mm-hmm. not qualified to read the Bible for themselves and ask yeah. questions and God can lead them to him? They can. They don't have to sit at my feet and be taught. Can they be loosely mentored? Can I touch base with them once a week so they don't fall into heresy? They can. That's what I see in the Bible. And it turns out, this is what I found as we started pivoting this way, we'd already been doing it. We just started doing it more. We freed up time for our people to run their lighthouses. They asked four basic questions. They would read through scripture. What does this say about God? What does this say about people? Who will, how will you apply this this week? That's the obedience part. And who will you share it with? And then we showed them how to go out among the lost to encounter people like the demoniac, for example, share with them what they're learning and then lightly come alongside their life, doing nice things for them. Think of it like random acts of kindness as the Lord leads. And as we started to dig into this more, guess what we found out? They're doing this all around the world. The same thing God had shown Nikki and put on paper in 2008, I'm going to show you it written out. They've been doing it in underground Russia, underground China underground Iran. They have millions of people in India. They're in Afghanistan doing this. Millions and millions of people all around the world are doing ministry the exact same way God revealed to Nikki at the beginning of our church. And so we've now teamed up with these people to learn some application tips and just how to do this well. And it's helped us just in the last two years to take off with success. That's what we're doing. That's that's so cool. Yeah, that's beautiful. I love all of that. I have nothing to add. <laughs> <laughs> We're done. Thank you. Yeah. Um, you know, Nikki, one of the things you said much earlier in our conversation was you talked about the marketing of the church and the branding. And it just really got me, you know, when Kelly was sharing that story about the demoniac where he wants to be a part, like that's textbook branding, isn't it? Like that's that's like, yeah, come be a part of our brand and put, you know, such and such name up on the wall. And Jesus is just like, no, 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 no. We're not doing any of it. We're not doing any of that. Let me show you my marketing strategy. Right. So, 
just from your vantage point of being having been international and around the world and things like that, kind of what is your view of like how the church is engaging in marketing and branding in maybe something of a detrimental way? Oh, that's a really good question. You know, I think that we have to be very careful how we draw people to Jesus. Hmm. Are we inviting them to come meet a person or are we inviting them to come be entertained by a person? And I think in our entertainment-focused culture, our marketing can tend to be entertainment-oriented. And we justify it by saying, we call it, we have our euphemisms. We call it seeker-friendly, right, for example. Um, right? Like, and, yep. or, being, or we just want to be excellent. Yeah. Or relevant, right? We want to be relevant. Yeah. Yeah. Being all things for all people. And, and the reality is Jesus's marketing strategy was as follows. When somebody would come to him and say, hey, I want to follow you. Uh, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. My favorite one was yeah. the cannibalism line. Right. If you want to, yeah, if you want to, I'm like, you must drink Eat my me. blood and eat my flesh, right? Like, or, or, hey, I want to follow you. Okay. Uh, but I need to go bury my dad. No, let the bed dead bury the dead. That was Jesus' market strategy. Why is he trying to communicate and all that? He's trying to communicate that, hey, guys, what you're asking for, what you're, what you're wanting to do in following me is going to cost you significantly. This mm-hmm. isn't just some, this isn't going to sort of add to your stature or be this great, like, and what you're envisioning, some sort of glorious experience. It, it, there is glory and beauty in it, but not the way that you're envisioning is the world envisions. And I get concerned that the way that we market Jesus to the world and try to draw people in, we are in some ways kind of fibbing, right? We're, 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 the picture that we're given is this is what it's like to be a follower of Christ. Lights, camera, action, right? Fog machine. Skinny jeans, oh. all those kinds of things. And really, yeah. what is it like to follow Christ? It's, it's a cross on the back. It's maybe meeting in a basement somewhere in a cold environment with a lookout outside the door to make sure that nobody finds out that you guys are getting together. It's singing hymns, but having to lip sing it so that nobody can hear you worshiping. You know, it's, it's maybe meeting outdoors in the middle of the winter in a free country like the U.S. just to make sure that you know, you, in the midst of this pandemic, you have a, a way to gather together. It's going to cost us. Mm-hmm. And right now, the way we market, the way we portray the, Jesus to our culture is not that it's going to cost us anything. It's going to just be about what it can give us. So that's the one thing that I think we need to be very aware of and, and careful about, because what we're building then is are not disciples who are going to be able to stand when difficulties and persecutions come their way, because that's not how they were discipled. That's not what it was supposed to be. Yeah, absolutely right. One of the things that we saw or are seeing during COVID is a lot of churches really struggling to exist or make it. But if we are doing church the way that Jesus set up the church, Jesus set up the church in the middle of something that was akin to COVID. They couldn't meet in large groups. They definitely couldn't meet publicly. They had to meet when they were in hunker down mode and the church flourished in that time. So you have to wonder why aren't we flourishing and expanding now? Interestingly, 
um, without knowing COVID was coming, we planted up here on Valentine's Day, 2020, mm -hmm. one little tiny lighthouse. We now have six. We're multiplying very quickly up here in Alaska through mm -hmm. COVID. While many of our friends are losing their churches and shutting down, there's a couple mega churches up here who've shut down in COVID. They must be doing the opposite of what Jesus intended to be done when we look at the book of Acts. Um, church has to be relational and people need relationship right now. So church should be growing right now if we're marketing it, quote unquote, the right way. Marketing relationship is always going to be attractive, but um, setting up an entertainment transaction isn't going to work anymore. When God told Nikki many years ago, prepare them for persecution, it's exactly what Nikki said. We've been selling the wrong thing. We've been creating the wrong thing. Believers, people who are following Jesus are going to be able to stand up through their entertainment mechanism being shut down on Sunday I was reading recently, remember when Jesus' brother said, hey, well, why don't you go down to Passover? You know, that's what famous people do. They do public things. And Jesus is like, yeah, my time's not yet come, but your time, your time's every day. Well, then you fast forward to the actual Passover when Jesus gets crucified. And it says, Jesus went down to the Passover for his time and come. And I had this epiphany. If my time is every day, then that means my day for crucifixion is when? Every day. Every day. Every day. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Live like that. Good morning. Yeah. That's what today is. Your time has come. And are we yeah. ready for that? Because if you watch this movie, Sheep Among Wolves, Volume Two, it's about the underground church in Iran and how they do church the way we do church for the lighthouses. And they say, we get up every day. They say goodbye to each other as if it's their last day. And they go out and they disciple. They make disciples because it's their last day. And they expect wow. to be caught and killed. What about us in America? Yeah. Yeah, it really is a stark contrast when mm -hmm. you look at like your typical believer in the U.S. Like it's 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 like pulling teeth just to kind of get, you know, can you serve at the food pantry once a month? Well, you know, I got this and I got that and for whatever mm -hmm. for whatever reason. And, you know, I've always said like. Well, what do what do we expect exactly? Because that wasn't part of the deal. Like when when we marketed to them in the beginning, we told them, you know, come, it's this great show. You're going to feel real good. We want to encourage and inspire you. And then Jesus is going to make your life great. Like we never said anything about bearing your cross and, <laughs> you know, serving and doing all that yeah. kind of stuff. So now you know, however many years later, when we start asking them to do the work of the kingdom, we're like, well, that wasn't part of the original deal. And now we have this church that, just from our vantage point, is completely inept, like completely inept. The church in America, like, it has nothing to offer. Any movement, any social justice, like, it just doesn't have anything to offer. What is the, you know, what is the best that we can we can do as a church? We have churches of thousands and thousands of people and 50 people show up for an event. You know, it seems like a lot, but when you look at it percentage-wise, it's just, it's such a small, small fraction. So, yeah, I really appreciate what you guys are saying about the how Jesus marketed. I want to ask another question. Let's see how much trouble this one gets us into. So you two have a very influential role in that Kristen and I 
joke around with people and say, yeah, we have friends that run Alaska and we're not, we're not kidding. Like they, they joke and we're like, we're like, no, that pretty much, they run Alaska. Right. And am I right, Kristen? Like, that's what we say. Well, that's what yeah, we they, say. Yeah. They pretty much run Alaska. And one of the things that I'm noticing, especially in this COVID with the election and all that is how much the political spectrum, the political realm Wherever you come out, Democrat, Republican, or whatever, is also making the church not grow itself because we're so who's going to be elected, who's going to do this, and and we lose sight of the vision of the kingdom, right? So just from your perspective as people who, you know, you're on speed dial of the governor of, of Alaska, what, what would you just say into that kind of whole realm and perspective? You know, well, I, you know, it's, it really is a privilege to, to serve to serve the people of, of Alaska and to serve a, gun, a governor who's a wonderful man uh, and a great friend of the church. You know, it's been very interesting for, for, for both of us sort of balancing our, our larger worldview with being um, in government. And I think, you know, if you go and you look at the stories of Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego and, and Joseph— that we see that God does place people, um, his people in positions of servant leadership in the midst of very tense political situations, right? And there is a place for that. I think it's been very helpful for Kelly and I to keep that perspective that you just referenced, um, Dan. And I think that we as a church have to keep in mind is that we serve a king who is the king of kings, and there is no one who gets placed in authority that he does not ordain to that place and for that season. And so ultimately, as much as we like to think we have control over who will be the next president or next senator or next whatever, we have a role in it. But ultimately, it is God who exalts and the Lord who lays low. And we also know at the end of the day how this story ends. See, as Christians, we should be the most optimistic and hope filled <laughs> planet, right? What and Christians yeah. have you been talking to? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. And yet we see so many yeah. believers right now who look like they've been sucking green persimmons for years and are just really, really upset, right? Like everything's mm. everything's falling apart. And you know, this country's going to going to hell in a handbasket on both sides of the political aisle. And my perspective is, yeah, there, there's going to be, we're going through, we have to acknowledge we're going through a rough season, but we know that Jesus is going to make all things new. Don't know when it's going to happen, but we know that's how this story ends. So we can walk through all of this. You know, it says Jesus endured the cross for the joy set before him. We as believers should be able to endure what we're walking through with our nation and with this world with hope and joy, because we know what, what comes next. We know how this all ends. I get concerned when I see the church begin to reflect culture mm-hmm. instead of the church being the salt and light in the culture. I, I feel like we're seeing in a lot of different ways the church become so influenced by the tensions and the and the roilings that are happening politically and socially in our culture that it's losing its role to be that that transformational agent that brings peace where there is conflict that brings order, where there is chaos that brings love, where there is hate that brings reconciliation, where there is bitterness and unforgiveness that brings hope, where there is despair. Instead, we, uh, for a lot, we're, we're kind of becoming a part of that. We're joining in the anger. We're joining in the, mm-hmm. and that's just not who 
who God created us in his, in his church to be. And so I think there's, there's more, there's more for us. And I hope that we can, we can get our, our perspectives aligned and get ourselves focused on what's, what's most important. And so in, in the context of where we are right now and in our positions that are, you know, honestly, yes, they're political positions. I just think in terms of the broader picture, and I, I try to keep that, that hope alive in me and, and then work towards bringing that hope to bear right now in this context and in whatever ways that I can to serve uh, the people that God's given us the, the privilege to, to serve right now for this season. What do you think, sweetheart? I think that this is a great question. One of the questions along the same line that we get asked regularly on this is basically, what's the role of Christians in politics right now? And should we be involved at all? And what should we say? And Nikki, I think, just gave a fantastic answer to it. And I don't have much to add. This is a perspective that that I would share for us all to keep in mind. The Bible tells us that where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, so does every evil thing. And that is what I see in most political circles that I'm in, Mm. which is exactly why I would say to the Christians out there, and by Christians, I don't mean people who say they're Christians. I want to explain that I think the Christians is Jesus followers. They're not the same. Mm-hmm. People who follow Jesus and have a relationship with him, now is the time to get involved in things that affect policy making. That's what politicians are policy making that affect people. Because if you follow Jesus and don't have room for jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, then we can counteract the every evil thing that is now running amok and affecting all the people. Because if we don't step up into those gaps, it really is an intercessory role that we can play, then those gaps will be filled by every evil thing. And Mm. you don't have a right to complain about it if you won't step up and do something about it, which I'm going to segue is what Nehemiah did. So when Nehemiah is taken captive and held in Persia and gets word that his people are left defenseless and his town of Jerusalem is lying in ruins, he did something about it. And he went back and at his own expense and at great cost, stepped in and took a leadership role. It wasn't given to him. He stepped in and took it because it was left empty. And he rallied the normal, everyday, ordinary people who were God followers to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, which we can still see today, Nehemiah's walls. And they did it in record time. That's what I know is happening up here in Alaska I wonder if that's what's happening in the U.S., if God is calling out to normal, everyday Jesus followers saying, rise up, rise up, rebuild the walls, protect the people. He has a heart for the widow, the orphan, the the ones who are left that don't have people to speak out for them. When are we going to rise up? And instead, what we see, whether it's on TV, in our streets, in our communities, or on social media, we see what Jesus said. Don't look for wars or rumors of wars or famine or ruins. Look instead for when the church, the people of the church, stop loving each other. That's when the end is coming. How dare we, Jesus followers, turn on each other because we 
don't like Trump or don't like Biden. Are we serious? Is this what we've devolved to? We're regretting as a nation because we don't have love for each other. Instead of letting the love of Jesus Christ unite us, that we would roll up our sleeves and get to work for the people around us and start rebuilding our communities from the ground up to start with the defenses, the wall, so that Mm -hmm. we can actually have homes and stores and communities within that the people would be safe, the children, the widows, the orphans, the aliens. That's what we're supposed to be about. If you're reading the same book I'm reading and the best place to do that, when people say, you know, you shouldn't be in the place that you're in, uh uh-uh. The best place to do that, Jesus followers, is in places of decision-making. It's in places of power because that's when you can use it for the people. But you have to be focused on the people. And you can't be focused looking up at the Capitol or up at the White House or up at the talking heads on TV. We have to be completely disregarding of them. The only person I'm looking up to is Jesus Christ. Yeah. All right. Reach it. Nikki, you're going to get me in more trouble here. There seems to be in our country right now, probably around the world, really, quite a bit of focus on racial tensions. And you being, you know, born in in, in Africa and, and being a part of that culture and then here in the U.S. And um, I hope it's OK if I say biracial relationship. I hope I hope that is appropriate. But I'm I'm noticing that. A lot of the church in America, we're not forerunners in this racial ring. We're hopping on board with other things is, is kind of my perspective on things. And so I was just wanting to ask you as someone who this is very real to, like, what is your perspective on the racial tensions, the role of the church, the role of God's people? Oh, I mean, that's such a huge question. I think we're in a lot of ways, we're, we're trying to, we're all trying to figure that out within the body of Christ right now. And right now, I can tell you a few things for sure that it is not. It is not supporting or even tacitly accepting the role of violence and destruction to achieve what might be a noble end. That for sure is not what the church can or should be about. And I think the church needs to be a lot very vocal against that. I would love, for example, to see the church going into those places that have been torn down where there's been billions of dollars of damage across the country and helping businesses rebuild and helping families rebuild their lives, you know, who lost loved ones and whatnot. That, what's the role in the church in the midst of a crisis like that is precisely that. Kelly referred to it, rebuilding the walls. It's a metaphor. Mm-hmm helping rebuild those communities. And it's not just about rebuilding businesses, right? It's also about uh, rebuilding relationships, bringing redemption where there's been Mm -hmm. brokenness, division, hurt, and injustice. You know, I'm reminded of the Micah mandate, you know, where we're told to do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with our God. The church's call is a call to justice. And so, so the desire to be involved in justice is a, is a great thing. But we, we don't pursue justice as the world pursues justice. We pursue justice as defined, as, as explained in scripture. And it's a different, it's a different kind of justice. Um, we, I think Martin Luther King right now, uh, as, we, as we're looking at the, the, the racial divisions and, and, and um, the pain, the very real pain of, uh, of the black community in the country right now, 
he, if there's any figure within the, the African-American community in our country who beautifully embodied what it means to be a, an activist in the, in, the, in the truest sense, a civil rights activist, but from an also a, a biblical pastoral perspective, it was him. And for all of his own personal feelings in his life that are um, that, that may be may or may not be uh, the case that that, were, that are coming out, what we do know is the theology of peaceful, loving resistance to injustice was what changed the hearts and minds of a nation. If you watch what happened in, in, at Selma, you know when the when they were just marching in peaceful protest. And a country's conscience was stricken when they saw how how those 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 people who were marching were treated, and it be, it became this huge snowball effect. People are motivated by love; they're motivated by peace; they're mm-hmm. motivated by that selflessness and that self sacrifice. And that's what the church can offer right now. And I don't see as much of that. I see, at least in, in terms, and this is just my own sort of slice of life, okay, but on Facebook or wherever I look, I see a lot of self-righteous pontificating. I see a lot of um, moralizing and folks feeling like they are doing the right thing by just saying, you know, I stand with so-and-so or I stand, you know, for such and such. And it's so easy to do that, just to do a post or a tweet. But what really costs something, this goes back to the taking up our crosses. Mm-hmm. That's not looking for a whole bunch of likes on Facebook. Mm-hmm. What looking for is his people to roll up their sleeves and to walk by a business that just got burned down and say, what are we going to do about this? How are we going to mm-hmm. help people? What he's looking for is for people to walk by a school and see uh, a school that's primarily, say, African-American that's just falling apart and, the, and their scores are all down and the church saying, you know what? We're going to partner with this school in our community and we're going to tutor these kids and we're going to mentor these kids and we're going to help these families educate their kids and we're going to clean up the graffiti on the school and we're going to speak life into these kids and tell them they have a future. That's what the church needs to mm-hmm. be doing and because that's what we're called to be and to do. So if, I think that's where we can be most effective. And I, I hope that's the direction we go instead of being dragged along and dragged into the dirt and, and a lot of the mm-hmm. ick that we're seeing. Well, guys, thank you so much. Uh, I just want to ask just one final uh, word of encouragement uh, from you to us. If there's someone listening right now and they find themselves kind of frustrated with the church and it's where it is today and its role and how things are playing out, they're feeling that stirring of God in their hearts, that holy discontent. What would your word of encouragement to them be? For me, it's just a really easy to be able to say the one, share with you the one uh, word that's been sort of become one of my life verses. You have the gifts that are needed for such a time as this. God has equipped you. And all he's asking is for you to step forward in them. So go in the strength that you have, because it is he who is sending you. So just take what you got and go for it and watch what he does. It'll be spectacular. You just got to take that first step. That's awesome. Yeah. So I'm just, there's a lot of people right now who are really on my mind with the passing recently of Justice Ginsburg, and we've had some other national leaders pass. But what makes ordinary people extraordinary is they just did something. 
And I think that really is for me, the theme of what I see Jesus provoking in Christians right now. What are you going to do about it? You see this injustice. You see these things you're upset about to Nikki's point. I'm not asking for likes on Facebook. I love the verse in Hebrews, spur each other on to love and good deeds. Are you waiting around for your pastor to spur you on? Or is there a reason that holy discontent is in you? Who are you going to spur on? Don't do alone what you can do with someone else. What are you going to do about it? The thing that sets ordinary people apart is when they do the extra. And then Mm -hmm. you're extra ordinary. Mm. Just spur someone on, spur something on. That's good. Well, thank you guys. Uh, we certainly appreciate it having you and your perspective on life, liberty, and the church and all that you're mm-hmm. doing. Uh, it's so, so wonderful. We want to thank you all for joining us for this season of Only on a Sunday. If you haven't already, please subscribe to our podcast and feel free to check out what we're doing at the thelowriesonmission.org or on Facebook on the Lowry's on Mission. As we kind of close this season, you know, it's been more than once that we have received comments. We're, we're just kind of floored by the number of people who have been listening to this podcast. I mean, I thought, you know, maybe my mom will listen to it. You know, I'm not sure if Kristen's mom will. I don't, you know, I don't know. Uh, her brother in Texas probably will. And I got a few people I've discipled over the years that will probably pay attention. But just the amount of people who, who have responded to us, just thanking us, saying, these are the things that have been stirring in our hearts. Like the, the, these are the things we've been talking about in our homes and our churches and, and, and with our, our friends. And we, we just certainly hope that in some small way, we've, we've been a part of inspiring you to embark on that missional journey that God has for you. So uh, God bless you. Thanks for joining us this season. And uh, we'll see you next time. Thank you for having us. Thanks. Bye.